Uh, hey, well, again, uh, my name's Kyle. I'm the pastor here at Regen, and I just wanted to say thanks for coming out tonight. Um, Sid, can you take me down like a schmutz? Thanks, man. Uh, just a schmutz. Um, yeah, thanks a lot for coming out on um, like probably one of the last nice days that we're going to have this year and for sharing your time with us. I, I'm super grateful for you, for what Jesus is doing in Regen and what he has done over the last two years. Um, for two years, we've been at work believing that um, there were people in our community that didn't know Jesus and that if we got intentional about taking Jesus seriously in our lives, we could build relationships and connections with them uh, that would ultimately lead them to them seeing Jesus and developing their own relationship with him. And that's really what we're about. One of the things that I have been saying off and on, but increasingly over the last few weeks is that regeneration is is founded on this idea of we're gonna do church like nobody's ever done church so that we can reach people that nobody's ever reached before. And on the one hand, everything that we've done tonight looks really a lot like most of the churches that you and I have encountered over our lifetime. But one of the ways that we're gonna be shifting that in the spring um, is really gonna be equipping you to be having some really real conversations with your coworkers, with your friends and your family with the Bible in between you. Uh, one of the things that we continue to be convinced of is that you do not need a pastor to tell you everything the Bible says. God is pretty good at that. Um, he wrote it. And so uh, if we can get you and another person or another couple of people with Bibles in between you, we believe that that's where discipleship or apprenticeship to Jesus happens. I was just reading a book by a guy named Dallas Willard. It's called Living in Christ's Presence. He says, there's no problem that the church has that discipleship can't solve. There's no problem that the, that the church that you're frustrated with or the reason that you're here because you were burned or hurt or you've just never given church a chance before, there's really none of your hesitancies about church that can be solved if we don't take Jesus more seriously, which that sounds really good until it gets real. And that's why we sing, because when we start taking Jesus real, it gets hard. When we start taking Jesus real, it gets challenging. One of the idols in my life or those things that I probably worship falsely is that because I'm called to something and God wants it for me, it probably should be easy. Uh, and so thanks for you make me brave tonight. Um, Julia and I have been out of the habit as much as we used to be just in texting back and forth about the songs. So you would be, over, you'd be amazed to find the overlap that's happening even without us talking about it because Jesus really is the pastor of our church. So um, we're gonna spend our time tonight and close being the second to last installment of this series called Extravagant um, in the book of First Timothy. So if you've got a Bible, grab it. You can open up the Bible app. When you open up the Bible app, there's like a little, those like three, that new icon for like menu, which is those three lines. If you attach that and go to events, you'll find Regen and the text for this week is already dropped in there. But we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6, really through, through 19. But we'll see where we'll, we'll be spending most of our time on the, the Oreo cookie of that, not necessarily the cream in the middle. Um, before we get into that, not next week, but the week after. Next week, we're going to be doing a panel discussion and kind of just answering questions that we have about generosity, about how do we give, about how do we budget, about hearing stories of people's faithfulness. That'll be what we do next Sunday. So get excited about that and come ready with questions because you'll be able to text them in and then we'll be able to answer them. Um, because I know that for some of us that are kind of new to the way of Jesus or at least growing up and as like kind of becoming Christian adults on our own, this is new content for us, but that'll be then. And then the week after that, the 30th, we're starting a new series on heaven. 
So usually what we do is we preach through like a whole book of the Bible at a time. This time around, we've been jumping through the whole Bible, and we're going to do that again to talk about heaven uh, for about five weeks from the end of October to the end of November. And one of the pieces of that will be in the midst of every sermon will be the questions we're always asking about heaven. So for example, will our pets be in heaven with us? It's one of the questions that we'll answer. Um, Is God fair? on the basis of who he lets in and who isn't. How do we know who is in heaven? And and I'll tell you right now, if you want to get ahead of it, I've been reading a book by a guy named Scott McKnight. He's one of the best New Testament scholars in the States right now. Uh, And in his little chapter on who is in heaven, he got really cheeky and said, Jesus. So like, who's in heaven? Jesus. Well, who else is in heaven? He goes, well, we can't really say for sure, but what we can say is Jesus. And so some answers will be a little uh, skirt around the bush a little bit, but others will get right to the heart of it. And we'll answer some of those other ones in our weekly reconnect email. So if you don't get that, if you grab one of those hey cards, fill it out, we'll get you on that email list and we post it on our Facebook page and all sorts of stuff. So 1 Timothy 6, let's pray. And then we'll get into it. God, we know that that there's more situations in life than not that you need to make us brave for. There are places in our lives that we need to be made brave tonight. And that'll happen when we see you and experience you afresh. And so help us tonight, Jesus, to see you, to hear from you, to walk more faithfully with you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been in a series called Extravagant, A Brief History of the Generosity of God. And if you missed on out, out on some of it, what is the baseline of this series is that when God talks to you about money, he's always more interested in what he wants for you than what he wants from you. God is always interested, more interested in what he wants for you than he wants from you. God, as we've seen throughout scripture, keeps insisting over and over again that what he wants to be is our loving father, who provides for our needs in abundant and extravagant ways, who provides for our needs in abundant and extravagant ways. Now, here's the problem. The problem is that God's promise is to care for our needs, but our needs and our wants are often confused. Our needs and our wants are all messed up in our heads, which is what makes us see God's provision as lacking. If you feel like God isn't providing in your life, it's probably because you're holding him on the hook for providing your wants, not your needs, and God never promises to provide your wants. He only ever promises to provide your needs. But think about this for a second. If God desires to provide for your needs and you think your wants are your needs, you're gonna be frustrated or at least a little disappointed that you didn't get what you thought you should have get. And so you're gonna be like my, one of my brothers or I, we have made a pact never to reveal who it was. Was it Logan, was it Evan, was it Connor, was it Kyle? We'll never tell. But after a Christmas morning where my mom has always been extravagant with Christmas, lots of presents, lots and lots and lots of stuff, after an, you know hours of unwrapping gifts in our house one Christmas, one of us looked at my mom and said, that's it? We look at God and we say, that's it. If we think that he should be providing our wants and not our needs. We need to see God as providing not for our wants, but for our needs. But what gets that so confused is our appetite for stuff. What gets that so confused is our craving for stuff. 
And it's, and it's a craving that's hard to keep up with. It's a craving that's hard to satisfy. It's not like a let's just run to Taco Bell and eat the gordita and I'll feel better. No, it is a much more challenging one because our appetite for comfort and gadgets and toys and vacations and cars and Target home decorating products at least in our house, is too large. Our appetite for these things are too large. So we get, we get on this treadmill to chase after the money that we want and chase after money to provide for our needs, which is really our wants. And when it comes to giving, then I start talking to you about giving and you say, well, I don't really have the money to give. We just did an online survey. The number one response that people gave for not giving was they don't have the money. I bet you have the money. The problem is that you think your needs are your wants and your wants are your needs. So I say give, and you say I don't have the money right now, Not, but what you're really saying, if we get more honest, is really I'm just too busy providing for my own wants. But God has something different for you. But God has something different for you. He wants something better. He wants something bigger. He wants you, in the words of Lord, to crave a different kind of buzz. And so to help us kind of get in the frame of mind around this, uh, I brought... Uh, the version of the song Royals by Lord as performed by Pentatonix. So uh, take a look at this for a second. I've never seen a diamond in the flesh. I cut my teeth on wedding rings. In the movies And I'm not proud of my address In a torn up town No postcode envy But every song's like Gold teeth, grey goose Tripping in the bathroom Blessings, ball gowns Trash in a hotel room We don't care We're driving Cadillacs in our dreams But everybody's like Crystal, Maybach, diamonds on your timepiece Jet planes, islands, tigers on a gold leash We don't care We We are caught up in your love affair And we'll never be royals song on on the topic that we're talking about tonight, and it's about contentment. It's about how God has built you to crave a different kind of buzz. It's about how we are caught up in that love affair, but how that's not how God built us. God created us to crave a different kind of buzz. And so as they sing, they say, my friends and I, we've cracked the code. Well, Paul already cracked it. So let's look at 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, we're going to look at 6 through 10 and 17 through 19. I'll come back to the cream and the Oreo in a second. Paul says, Sid, I'm going to read the whole thing, but you can just leave that part up. He says, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. 
And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Skip down to verse 17. Paul says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be so proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. He says their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as, good, as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. In verses 9 and 10, Paul talks about our craving. And then in verses 6 through 8 and 17 through 19, Paul talks about how to satisfy the craving. So let's look more closely at verses 9 and 10. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Paul says that our craving here is actually more than a craving, it's a sickness. Our craving for money and for stuff is more, than a, is more than just a craving, it's a sickness. When I was growing up, my grandma had this book on her bedside table called Dr. Mom. Uh, and Dr. Mom was the book that when I got a cold, she'd go and look up my symptoms and figure out how to treat it. Paul is taking off Dr. Mom. He's taking Dr. Mom off the shelf and saying, the craving that you have isn't just a craving, it's a sickness. The craving that you have isn't just a craving, it's a sickness. Paul says that those who long to be rich find themselves in a bad place. Namely, they fall into temptation. They're trapped by many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge them into ruin and destruction. When Paul's writing this, he has, has to have in his mind Roman culture at the time, because the vomitorium is not just a ride at the Trumbull County Fair. Okay, here's how wealthy Roman aristocrats lived their lives. Uh, they would throw wild parties where you would eat until you were stuffed. And when you were full, you went into the vomitorium and puked it all up so you could go keep eating. And they kept doing this and doing this all night, and then it eventually led to wild sex and orgies. And the aristocratic class of Rome did this night after night after night after night after night after night after night. And soon, by the middle of the first millennium, barbarians are invading the outskirts of Rome, and the empire is crumbling around them, and they are too busy having fun to notice. Paul says they are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge them into ruin and destruction. Think of any movie, any movie that's about getting rich quick, whether it be The Wolf of Wall Street or Disney Channel's 1994 classic, Blank Check. <laughs> and this, this plot will play itself over and over again. The person who longs to be rich and craves money ends up in a bad place because of the temptations presented by that money, ends up in a bad place because of foolish and harmful desires, even if it's like a... I think in blank check, he has like a water slide into a pool from the inside of the house, right? Uh, and, and ultimately, it plunges them into ruin and destruction. And this is where Paul issues a well-known quote that you have always misquoted. He says, not money is the root of all evil. He does not say money is the root of all evil. If you're also interested, cleanliness is next to godliness is not in the Bible. Okay, that was Benjamin Franklin. Um, 
He says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Paul says, does not say money's the root of all evil. He says the love of money is the root of all evil. Said so if you could go back to the slide with those verses, and we'll look and you see that this passage is about our desires. Verses 9 and 10. He says, look, people who long to be rich, they have harmful desires. They have love of money, and they crave money. This is about our desires. This is about our hearts being out of whack. This is not just about our Christmas list being a little too long, our Amazon wish list growing unnecessarily. It is about a heart condition that the cravings, longings, loves, and desires of our hearts are out of whack. Or in the words of Jeremiah, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I can tell you who. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to, his, to the fruit of his deeds. My heart and your heart is sick. And it's not an issue of knowledge or wisdom or instruction, this life of generosity. The life of generosity is a matter of illness. It's a matter of heart disease, which we have seen from the very beginning of this series. I mean, think all the way back into Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, it was all about how Israel was going to fall into a trap of self-provision by believing when they entered the land and built their houses and raised their herds, that that was all them. They would say, I, by my own might and energy, have accomplished all this. Fast forward to Malachi, their heart sickness shows itself in that they're not tithing. Even though the Lord says, test me in this, the one place where the Lord says, test me and I will show up, they're not. Why? Because they're too anxious. Their heart is sick. Fast forward to Jesus, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Jesus tells us that our hearts are out of whack and that we put our heart where, with stuff where moth and rust destroy and thief breaks into steel. Fast forward to the Corinthians who were super excited to give and then stop giving. Why? Because they just need to meet their own needs for a little while. Our hearts are sick. But the good news is the text says, I, the Lord, search the heart. Listen, the scripture and the gospel always works like this. Identifying the need, solving the need. Identifying the problem, solving the problem. The heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick, but I know the heart, says the Lord, and I know the mind, and I search them, and I render according to the fruit of each one's deeds. So the Lord knows. And in this passage, 1 Timothy 6, God is giving us the cure for our disease. He gives us the cure for the heart. Do you remember in the Matrix, Neo is presented with a red pill and a blue pill. And one of the pills, if he takes it, will start a multi-million dollar movie trilogy and franchise. And the other will not. Much to our surprise, Neo chooses the one that starts a multi-million dollar movie franchise. I mean, I imagine, right? And it, it, we are presented with the same options, but it's not an either or. It's snatching both those pills and sucking them down. Because one pill is presented in verses 6 through 8, the other in 17 through 19. And so I want to look at both. So the first pill that we ought to swallow to solve this heart condition is contentment. Look at verses 6 through 8. He says, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with, with us when we came into the world and we can't take anything when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. First of all, the Greek here does not say if we have enough food, clothing, and Apple devices, or you know, it let us be, no, it just says enough food and clothing, let us be content. Here's the thing about stuff, you always want more. You, 
And if you need background on this, I highly encourage the 1990s VeggieTale movie, Madam Blueberry. Okay, it's the more fun version of this sermon. J.D. Rockefeller, who's one of, the, one of history's most wealthy, wealthy men around the Industrial Revolution, was once asked at the end of his life how much more money he needed, and he said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. The thing about stuff is that we always want a little bit more, but Paul changes the name of the game and invites us to pursue not more stuff, but contentment, which is ultimately connected to believing that we have enough. Contentment with godliness is great wealth. Can I stop for a second? You heard it here first. God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be rich in godliness, contentment, character, integrity, good deeds, and generosity. God wants you to be rich, but not in a currency of Benjamins or, or whatever. He wants you in a, he want, or, or you know, diamonds on your teeth or your watch or tigers on a leash or I don't know. He wants you, he wants you content. That is the wealth of the kingdom is to look at all of your stuff, to go home and look at your house or your apartment, to go home in your car, to go home uh, with, with your kid's stuff and your job and your life and to look at that and say, that's enough. And that's ultimately a choice. It is a choice to look at what we have and call it enough. Why? First, because we didn't bring it with us and we can't take it with us. Listen, there ain't nothing that you own that's going with you. Like, listen, I love my iPhone. Like, it, I'm not going to get to heaven and it's still going to be there clutched in my hand. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, I'm going to get to heaven and it's not going to matter about my stuff because my stuff has no eternal value. One of the stories that we tell about this is uh, when at our church we served in Illinois, we had lunch with the same family every Sunday after church and um, Dave and Julie couldn't make it to the house, so they asked Steph to shred the chicken for this soup in the crock pot. So Steph, you know, gets out the gnarliest fork she can find, and I mean just, I don't know where the rage came from. I mean, chicken is flying, <laughs> scraping sounds like, I mean, juice, I mean, she comes out soaked with chicken stock, you know? It was a scary moment, and uh, as she comes in, I'm just kidding, my wife doesn't do anything that's not careful, including praying for me, you know? And uh, so she's carefully shredding this chicken, but it is scraping against the pot, and she realizes just as Julie's walking in the door that this is like a fancy nonstick crock pot, which guys in the room are kind of like, yeah, whatever, but women are like, whoa, nonstick, man, there's nothing sticking to it, and, but you don't scrape that crap with metal. You know, you get plastic or something, and, and, and Julie looks at that, and Steph's kind of like, huh, and Julie says three words. She says, no eternal value, because you can't take it with you, because it didn't come with us. No eternal value. And it's that eternal perspective that C.S. Lewis talks about when he says, the very nature of joy makes nonsense of our common distinction between having and wanting. Joy, when rooted and grounded with Jesus in his death and work, gives us an eternal perspective on our stuff that helps us look at what we have and say, that's enough. It helps us get off the treadmill. It helps us stop chasing after the next thing because here's the secret about stuff. The goalpost moves. You have your Samsung Galaxy 6S and then you buy your Samsung Galaxy 7 and it explodes in your car. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? This, the, I mean, the goalpost moves and it can kill you. 
But instead, when we root and ground in Jesus, our contentment and our choices, look, something different happens. And this is why Paul kind of does this in the middle of teaching about money, changes the tone for a second and talks about the gospel. And he says, you, Timothy, are a man of God, so run from all these evil things. Pursue righteousness and a godly life along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Listen, as a side note, if there's a temptation in your life, do not go near it. You run. You run. If there's an addiction in your life, if there's a sin pattern in your life, you don't kind of cozy around with it. When you feel tempted in the room, you leave the room. When you feel tempted on the phone, you get off the phone. When you feel tempted on the internet, you shut the computer down. You run. That's an honorable kind of wimpiness because we can't win. You run. He says, don't, he says, run away. And some, and then he says, fight the good fight for the true faith. Some of you are fighting the crappy fight. Stop it. Fight the good fight for the true faith. And he says, hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you have confessed so well before many witnesses. And I charge you now before God who gives life to all and before Christ Jesus, who gave a good testimony before Pontius Pilate, that you obey the command without wavering, that no one will find fault with you from now until our Lord Jesus comes again. For just at the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only almighty God, the King of all kings and Lord of all lords. He alone can never die. So interesting. Look at this. Talk about heaven, verse 16. And he lives in a light so brilliant that no human can approach him. No human eye has ever seen him and never will all honor and power to him forever and ever. See, Paul does this weird excursus about the gospel, but at the core is verse 12, hold tightly to your eternal life. In other words, hold tightly to where your true treasure is. Let me get there in a second, but let's look at the red pill. So he says in verse 17, teach those who are rich in this world. You may not feel rich, but you are an American. There are people in China sewing soccer balls together with their teeth for five cents today. You're rich. Uh, Warn those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Instead, their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. Look, here it is again. They should be rich. All right, God wants me to be rich in good works. Darn it. And generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future they may experience true life. Paul says that those who are rich in this world, which is us, we need to remember that money cannot be trusted because it is unreliable. Listen, how many times does my car have to break? How many times does the economy have to crash? How many times does the dishwasher have to peter out? How many times does the thing that you just bought have to then suddenly disappoint for us to realize that money is unreliable? And that the only reliable thing is God himself who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Stop believing that God is some cranky old man who is stingy and wants you unhappy. He gives you all good things for your enjoyment. All good things, wait a minute, that you need. All good things that you need for your enjoyment. And so Paul gets to the heart of the matter. And he says, instead of being heartsick, instead of being on the treadmill, he says, crave a different kind of buzz, and you do that by giving. He says that money can only be reliably used for one thing, an eternal purpose. Money can only, which is unreliable, can only be reliably used if it's given to a reliable project. 
which is the kingdom. This is why we, send, we give money to send Shelby to Ecuador. This is why we give money to missionaries. This is why Steph and I, over and above, like our 10% giving support missionaries, because we know that, you know what, I can go on a little bit less this month, but the kingdom is going to go forward because we give to Sheila and Andrea, because we give to Jeff and Christy, because we give to Vance and Andrea, because we, we think that that is an eternal investment. And that's the exact language that Paul uses. Look at this. He says, by doing this, they'll be, by giving and being generous, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future. God is a big fan of saving. God is a big fan of investing. He's a big fan of us investing in reliable investments. And the most reliable investment is the kingdom. The most reliable investment is our discipleship. The most reliable investment is our church. The most reliable investment is what God is doing globally. He says, Money, which is unreliable, becomes reliable or at least usable when it's given to an eternal purpose. But look at this. What Paul says is that generosity, a life of generosity, of being rich in good works and generous to those in needs and being ready to share with others is true life. Is true life. Have you ever had a friend come back from vacation and they're like, oh my gosh, you have not lived until you have been on the beaches of Barbados, naked in the moonlight. You know what I mean? We've never had anybody say that to us, but I'm sure people say that. You have not lived until you've gone to Scotland. You've not lived until you've gone to Napa. You've not lived until you've gone here or here or here or here. You know what Paul says? Paul says you haven't lived until you've lived generously. Paul says if you want to know what true and real life is, be generous, give. That's true life. That's the real thing. That's exactly what Jesus meant when he said, I have come so that may have, they may have life and life abundant. That's true life is a true life of generosity to which we are set free when we know that our Father provides all the things that we need for our enjoyment. I mean, Scripture kind of does this weeble-wobble back and forth between God's going to provide your needs so you can give, and so give because then God will provide your needs. And it goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And ultimately, as we come to the end of this series on generosity, we need to recognize that there's like three emotions in any room when we talk about money in church. And the first emotion is frustration. All right, Kyle, shut up. Like, we've done this for five weeks. It's time to move on. Like, we're, we're, we're fine, right? We get it. The second emotion is hesitance, which I think is probably more this room. And that emotion is, but if I give and something happens, then what? I mean, I, I want to take you at your word, right? You said, I'm not giving because I just don't have the money right now. I get it. So you're saying, I've got student loans. I've got this car that's kind of always teetering. We've got medical stuff to pursue. We're just, we're doing this in our house. We're doing this over here. We're running over here. We've got this, 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 this. I get it. And so you're hesitant to take that step up that giving ladder to move toward more consistent giving or generous giving or extravagant giving because you're saying, well, what if? You might even be saying, I don't know if I want to live in that kind of sacrificial place. But there might be a third emotion that comes on the other side of this because those first two emotions of hesitance and anxiety and frustration and anger reveal a white knuckle grip on our stuff. And it is a death grip in the sense that unless we relinquish it, we will die. It is choking out our souls. And so in this series, God is trying to pry 
our fingers open, not to even live necessarily with open hands, but to take hold of something else entirely. First Timothy 6.12, take hold of the eternal life to which you have been called. Take hold of what your true treasure is. One of my favorite parables is in Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. It's everything. It's my life. It's my ministry. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. And when he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. The way of Jesus is, is summed up in this, that Jesus reveals himself and his kingdom to be so valuable, so worthy, so extravagant that to possess just him, we would give up everything else to make him our highest treasure. We would give up our stuff. We would give up our houses. We would give up our cars. We would give up our degrees. We would give up all of this just to lay hold of Jesus. That The gospel of Jesus and his extravagance is that we lay hold of him. And when we do and we get to heaven, what we find is that's the only thing we can take with us. Guys, the only thing that we can take with us is Jesus himself. So then we get to heaven and it's not about our stuff anymore. It's about that one thing that I treasured most for my whole life in every decision, even when it sucked is now that one thing that I get to enjoy forever. Here's the whole series about heaven in heaven. The best thing is that we get to see Jesus face to face. I mean, that's it. Even though that doesn't sound satisfying to us now, it will satisfy us forever there. And yet here's this deal, this principle of us giving up everything to possess this, that we are the merchant on the lookout for fine pearls and we find one of great value, we sell it to give it away. That is not like that's something Jesus himself has never done because there once was a savior on the lookout for a people of great value. And when he found them, he gave everything, including his own life, so that he could have them forever. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus, who, though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor so that by his poverty he could make you rich. The gospel of Jesus is about us demonstrating to the world that Jesus is our highest treasure. And frankly, one of the ways that we do that is through generosity, because what we say is that my money is not my highest treasure, my stuff is not my highest treasure, another opportunity to go out to eat and gain a pound and then, you know, just become an even more committed client at Byler Elite Strength Training is not my highest treasure. My highest treasure is Jesus and his kingdom. That's what it's about. And so may we be regen known as a church for extravagant, remarkable, surprising generosity that in everything we do in word and deed show Jesus to be our highest treasure so that in heaven we get to enjoy what we've already been enjoying for our whole lives. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to be generous as you yourself are generous. We want to show, show the world that you're our highest treasure. And so pry open our hands and teach us contentment. Teach us what enough really means. Lord, by your faithfulness, you have provided everything that we need. There is not one need that we've had that you've not provided for us. And so, Father, help us trust that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.